All right, welcome everybody into the show. We uh, still do not have any music to play yet. Uh, that's Eve Department. All right, he says he's going to get us some, some, some private reggae music to open up our show, which you know couldn't be more appropriate because obviously when people look at me, they think reggae music. <laughs> I think immediately, so I think some good reggae to bring in the World Collide podcast is definitely the appropriate jingle for the opening of our show, Eve. Every every picture that I have of you, I put a um a little reggae hat and some dreads, and I put a little speech bubble that says "Yum on." Next All right, now you're gonna have to tweet that picture. <laughs> now you just you painted yourself into a corner. I'm excited to see how atrocious you can make me look, um, with my 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 pale white skin and some dirty dreads. I love it. Uh, no, that's awesome. I um, man. You, 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 I'm, I'm, I was going to ask you like, like it's a, it's a question to ask. Did you see the fights last weekend? <laughs> nah, I didn't think, you know, UFC 187 was worth the buy. Um, yeah, I mean, I'll tell you what, great card, uh, you know, is one of those cards that, you know, that, that everybody looks forward to where it leaves you thinking about it, still kind of pumped about it. You know, even the next day, and I'm calling this weekend's card. You're going to L.A. to do the pre- and post-fight show, and, you know, everybody's still hung over from 187. Nobody's really ready to turn their attention now to the fight night this weekend in Brazil for Carlos Conor versus Tiago Alves, and that's just kind of what happens. I mean, that first round between Andre Arlovsky and Travis Brown, I, I pushed out on Twitter because it's I go, what the hell is going on? Something of that nature is what I tweeted out because it was just absolute insanity, insanity. And there were so many cool under, you know, store, you know, under underlying stories in that fight. In that, Travis Brown used to train at Jackson's. He left Jackson's, started training under Edmund out in Glendale with you know, kind of Team Ronda Rousey, as it's almost been dubbed. Uh, and one of the things he said was, "I left because." Edmund is making me more technical. I didn't feel like I was really learning how to fight until I got here, which is good a is is good a relationship as Travis still has with with Team Jackson Winklejohn. That you can't help but burn Mike Winklejohn with that kind of comment. I mean, there's no way he can't take offense having been your striking coach for a couple of years now um, to you leaving and saying that you know, Edmund is more technical and you're just learning how to fight. But, but then, you know, obviously Andre Arlovsky comes out and knocks you out. Yeah, that's, um, I don't know. And I don't think he bit off more than, or he put his mouth, put him in a position where his ass has to cast a check that he can't. But um, I talked to Travis a couple of months ago before, when he first went to um, to Glendale, when he first started training with, out of out of Edmund's gym. And, um, his his I was I was surprised to see him there and his reason was you know I just get I just get more attention here you know which I understand completely when you're at a big camp like Jackson's or American Top Team uh or possibly AKA uh, I'm not sure of how big AKA is but it's it's hard to get attention sometimes you know uh there's this multiple guys fighting on the same card and 
maybe your time frame doesn't match up with somebody else's and then with the coaches at the same time. So I, I, that's the kind of vibe I was getting off of him. Not that he was he was un, unhappy at Jackson's, just that he was getting more attention here, more focus on him and his skill set getting better rather than having to to spread the butter as you as you will. Yeah, and and it and it's a it's a great point and a very valid one. And for a guy like Travis Brown, who is incredibly athletic uh, for a heavyweight, he's always been a guy that you had your eyes and say, wow, this, this guy can really do some damage in the division. Obviously, his loss to Verdum derailed a lot of his hype, but he started building all of that back. And, and I agree with him in, in that realm. And, and look, there was a camp I did at Jackson's where – you know, I was I was dissatisfied for that same exact reason. You know, when I was getting ready to fight Chell Sonnen, we had a ton of guys in the gym. And on Tuesdays and Thursdays was our main sparring day. And normally all the coaches come to that. They're all there. But for that particular camp, you know, we had so many guys and so many people were traveling and so much was going on that it was basically Coach Winklejohn who's there in this gym where you've got sparring going on in the octagon, in the ring, on the mat, all over. Everybody wants attention. He's only got one eye to start with, so he doesn't even have two. Uh, I mean, it was really hard for the guy. You know, it, it was hard. And, and he's a phenomenal coach. He's one of the best in the game. But he can't do all that by himself. And I think even he was a little frustrated. Um, and it's not to put blame on anybody else, but it's just the dynamic that takes place in those big gyms. And, you know, I had time. I did a full-on training session with Coach Edmund out in Glendale one time with Jake Ellenberger. And, and I'll tell you, I gained a lot of respect for him. You know, I watched him as he developed Jake's technique. We did some different drills, watched him train Ronda. And I try to do that as much as I can at every camp. So I certainly see the appeal. Um, and for a heavyweight to be at a smaller gym where you're not going to spar too hard and diminish your chin because in that division, your shelf life is just way shorter. Um, you know, I, 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 can, I can see that. But I know, I know that it, there definitely had to be a little – knowing coaches in this space and not necessarily that I – I didn't talk to anybody at Jackson's, but you know how coaches are. You know that's got to be one of the ones where they're kind of afterwards like, you know what, man, kind of needed that to have our – I go out and beat a guy who left us. You know that's how some of these guys, they can't help it but be competitive. Um, but that was both guys just in, I mean, forget all the coaches. It was an incredible fight. What kept Travis Brown up is beyond me. Ooh, Heart. That Heart will. Definitely. And I, I honestly, I, I'm glad he ran out of toughness, man. Because I mean, well, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say he ran out of toughness. He was still trying, but um, his fuel tank for for taking punishment was was depleted at that point because he he took a beating after after the first after the first instance where he got rocked um he he recovered a bit but he never fully recovered and because of that he took some some hard shots from oh. from Andre Olovsky of all people you know uh yeah. that it it was it was it was entertaining it was fun to watch but i am glad that it stopped when it did yeah, you know, it, 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 my heart goes out. I mean, Travis, Travis is a buddy, and, and he's a great guy. And, yeah. and, you know, I like Andre a lot as well. I don't know him as well as I do Travis. But it, so it's always difficult when you see that. I mean, he, he had that moment where he was getting clobbered, and he really just got caught. It wasn't like yeah, – I mean, that's what happens with these heavyweights. You can be the better guy. You could be the more technical guy, well-prepared, come in there, but you get clipped early on the chin – 
and now you're dancing. And Arlovsky did a very nice job of not letting him recover. But there was that one moment where Arlovsky was going in for the kill, and Travis hit him with that hook, and Arlovsky flopped, I mean, right to the mat. And, and it was a lot like that Pat Barry Czech Congo fight, you know, yeah. where you thought, oh, my God, Travis is going to pull this out. And the dude was on wobbly legs fighting for a while, man. Just his heart was tremendous. I remember I was, I was tweeting right about that, around that time. Why doesn't Travis Brown uh, keep his left hand up? And that, as I'm about to hit send is when he dropped Andre. And I'm thinking to myself, maybe that's why. Because I, th- I thought he was going to finish it. I-, I literally had that same thought of Pat Barry, Czech Congo, when-, when that moment happened. So I'm glad to see we're on the same page. Yeah, it was, oh, you know, just, just both of those guys, though, man. Hats off. You know, Travis Brown, pretty interesting. He, he was a guy that I was with the only time in my wife's life, and I'm- I am sure this will be the only time forever, it'll never happen again, where my wife was in the back of a cop car. And, and me and Travis Brown were walking around Albuquerque eating beef jerky that was delivered to us on the side of the road by a fan. <laughs> would, you, would you like me to go into detail? I was just about to say, there's a story there. that Because so, I don't understand. Like, those two things don't equate whatsoever. They, so they don't. The story. They don't. So there, were, there was a smaller promotion pro fights in Albuquerque at the, at the pit at the big basketball arena there uh, by University of New Mexico. Okay. And so we all go to it, and there's obviously some guys that train at the gym that are on the card. And it was me, my wife, Travis Brown, his girlfriend at the time, and then another guy by the name of Sean, who owned a car dealership, who, who would let us all borrow cars for our training camps. And so we all go to these fights, and then we're leaving. And as we're leaving, there's this one kid named Joey Bracamani who wrestled at Oregon, I believe. And... He was a very good wrestler, and he'd come into Jackson's every once in a while and teach a wrestling class here or there and help us with the wrestling. And he's not a very good drunk, but he was hammered this night. <laughs> I'm in training camp for Chael. Chael wrestled at Oregon, too, I believe, Oregon or Oregon State. And so Joey Bracamani is telling me, you better be getting ready, and he's hammered. He's like, Chael going to come with it. That's my boy. He's going to come with it. And I was like, oh, I know, I know. A tough matchup, man. I'm trying to wrestle every day, and I'm trying to be – Real polite, because this, this is a buddy of mine, but he is hammered. <laughs> Anyways, he follows us out in the parking lot screaming at me, Chael going to come with it. Chael going to come with it. And, of course, you know, Travis a big badass. He's like, you know, is this, is this, is this going to be? I'm like, no, guys, just walk the car. Let's go. Come on. We don't need any trouble. Sean, Sean of course, you know, his, his hackles are up. And, it, and we get into his car, and everybody's piling in. And this guy keeps yelling, and he won't stop. And he's yelling through the pasture side window where Travis was sitting. So Travis rolls the window down. He's like, hey, you talking to me? And the kid goes, yeah, I'm talking to you. And Travis opens the door. I'm like, no, get in. Get in the car. I'm like, no. Anyways, Joey Brockman, the drunk kid, goes around to the back of the car. And this guy, Sean, gets out of the driver's seat, runs around to the back of the car, and punches him. And so now this drunk off his ass wrestler is laid out behind the car. And I am just sitting there like, you, you idiot, you know. I get everybody in the car, and now, you know, we're leaving, and, and we're trying to get out of this, this parking lot fast. And I tell, tell this guy, Sean, stop the car. What are you doing? I go, stop the car. I'm going to check on him. This is a guy I'm going to see again. This is not a guy I want to make an enemy. He did not deserve this. So I get out of the car. I go, you guys just keep going so you don't get into trouble. 
Travis gets out of the car with me, and I go back to check on him. And I go back, and he's like, who hit me? Who hit me? And I'm making sure he's okay. Anyways, I could hear his friends giving the make and model of the car to the police. So I call this guy, Sean. I said, Sean, we're going to square this up with Joey tomorrow. You're going to call him and apologize for this, but you better get out of here now. You got my wife in the car. I got your daughter babysitting my kids. I am not happy. Get out of here. I'll call you in 30 minutes and let you know where me and Travis are, but don't stay by the, the arena. And um, anyways, so I finish up and I apologize you know, deeply to Joey. I say, look, I'm going to call you tomorrow and I will put you in touch with the man who just hit you and you guys are going to work this out. I am very, very sorry for what happened. Um, and, and he wasn't sober enough to really talk too much sense to at that point in time. So me and Travis, we, we take off. We're out of here. And we're walking down the road. And out of nowhere, a fan stops and recognizes us. And the, the, this wonderful woman gave us this homemade beef jerky. She's like, I would love for you guys to try this. And, let, and it just so happened that me and Travis were hungry. And beef jerky is great protein when you're cutting weight. So we're sitting there talking, walking around like idiots for 30 minutes, chewing off beef jerky. And out of nowhere, I get a call from my wife. She's like, Brian, the cops have stopped us, and they're pulling everybody out one by one and handcuffing us. She, and my wife is not happy. She's like, Brian, I want to go pick up my daughters, and I want to go home now. This friend of yours is an idiot, and I am, I am livid. I'm going to – where are you? She's trying to – I mean, she's not from Albuquerque. She came out with the kids to visit me for 10 days while I was in camp. So – I'm trying to get a, you know, an idea of where she is. And me and Travis are now jogging, trying to get to my wife. Luckily, right after they handcuffed my wife and put her in the back of a cop car, uh, Joey Bracamani decides he's, he's not pressing any charges whatsoever. And so they let everybody go and everybody out. And so this guy, Sean, comes back around to pick me and Travis up. And I am, I mean, you know me well enough to know when I'm mad, you know, and, and I've got that stern, you know, well, that's probably my normal face, but I've got that, that mean Brian Stan face on. But uh, I get in the car, and he starts going into it about, hey, I protect my friends. I stick up for my friends. I grab him by the shirt and just, I tell him, you weren't protecting anybody. <laughs> I don't need anyone's protection. You were trying to show off. I go, he was drunk, and you just wanted to get into a fist fight. I go, that was all about you and nobody else. Get me home now, I was fuming. And of course, then the next day, I tried to go to breakfast with my family, and I got Joey Bracamani calling me, leaving me messages. I'm going to burn that dude's house down. I'm going to burn <laughs> his car dealer. I mean, this is Albuquerque, right? We can't just like get in a fist. I mean, it's got to be, they take it to the 20th degree, right? Yeah. I'm going to burn your whole family down. I'm killing everybody. I mean, it's just, it's the Wild West out there. Kill so. everybody you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I never have, I don't go out and have encounters with the law. Like, this stuff doesn't happen. You know, I, I am a responsible adult, but then you get into Albuquerque, you hang out with some locals, and, and sometimes this is the stuff that happens. That's my Travis Brown story. That's one of the reasons why it was, it was difficult, obviously, to see him go down like that against Arlovsky, although, you know, big fan of both guys. But, man, what a performance around for the ages. That, that, that's a fight that will keep people talking for months, years. Yeah. And I, I'm I'm extremely excited about I'm extremely excited about this weekend coming up. But I'm excited about it because the last weekend was so good. There's a lot of times when there's not a lot of times when there's a card that's that big that lives up to the hype. You know what I mean? Um, thinking about thinking about the fights from last weekend. Thinking about Cerrone and Magdesi. Cerrone was supposed to fight Nurmagomedov. Nurmagomedov gets hurt. Magdesi steps up on short notice and 
it's a it's an entertaining fight. You know, it's it's a really entertaining fight. You know, um, Cerrone is going into that fight as the favorite. He's he's destroyed a bunch of guys since since his last fight with Dos Anjos, and and he's he's fighting a guy that's going to bring it to him. You know, Magdessi, he may not be in the top ten. He's oh, what is what was he? I think he was ranked at fourteen or thirteen on that on that night. But he's not in the top ten right now. But he's he's working his way up, and that guy's he's he's. he's He's a banger, man. So that fight was really exciting because that, that style matchup, that clash of styles, that was so much fun to watch. I was, I was entertained the whole time. Yeah, oh, great fight. And, and I'll tell you, everybody's getting kicked in the face by Donald Cerrone, and, and people just haven't found the answer to it. They haven't been able to stop it. Specifically, his left high kick is like a laser shooting out of his leg. And having sparred with him a bunch, it's a weird trajectory. It's a weird angle that he throws it at. And so sometimes guys think it's coming to the body, so they cover up there. They don't cover their face. And, uh, you know, smart move, in my opinion, by McDessie to basically say, whoa. And, I, I mean, I don't know if he was all there when he threw up the timeout. I think he was obviously buzzed bad yeah. from that kick. Um, but smart decision by him. You get a broken jaw. You know something's wrong. There's no reason for you just to sit there helpless while the guy then finishes you off and does even more damage and where you have a broken jaw in one spot becomes in multiple places. Um, and I think that the, the MMA fans and media responded appropriately in saying, too, you know what? Hey, great fight, intelligent self-stoppage by Magdessi. Um, You can't call him soft or weak or no. you know anything for doing something like that. That's intelligent. Yeah, definitely. And And... I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure he didn't. Uh, he didn't know that his jaw was broken, but he knew something was wrong. Um, that there was some serious damage done, and I guess possibly didn't know his jaw was broken. But that—that's an injury that I've had, and I don't wish that on anybody. I don't wish that on my worst enemy, man. That um, that's that's miserable. So who broke your jaw? I broke my jaw in the gym by just oh. being an idiot. Um. Sparring too soon after getting my wisdom teeth removed. Uh, so he actually so, broke your jaw. Who broke it? Uh, a bo- a kid, a boxer. Um, How long were you uh, eating through a straw? Six weeks. Oh, I was 147 pounds, and I was I was miserable, Brian. I mean, there was. I still lived in Conroe, so we were in our house in Conroe, Texas, and my wife, and, and I was, I had two of my little cousins. I have, I, I'm the oldest of my generation, by far. I mean, I'm 38, and the next cousin behind me is like 24 or 5, I think. That's right. You're 38, but... You definitely act like a solid 24, 25 year old. <laughs> I'm just I, uh, thank you. I, I was, I was, I was thinking you were gonna say 16, but um, no. <laughs> so that's good. I'm moving up. But no, I was. I, so I had my my cousins staying with me. They're living with me. My wife is is we're we're parenting them, and they're they're teenagers and kids. And um, so my daughter. Uh, and two two younger cousins are living with us, and my wife is 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 she's a mom, you know. She uh, she's cooking dinners and and everything else. And there was one night I remember going in the bedroom because she she I love I love her spaghetti. That's like one of my favorite meals. I know it's simple, but I've always loved it. And um, she was making that, and I was in the bedroom, and I was just so sad. I, it was like three weeks in. I was so sad that I couldn't chew. I had this longing to chew food. I was in the bedroom crying. 
I, 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 there were literally tears coming out of my eyes. I was crying. And I went back into the, into the kitchen. I um, grabbed a little piece of the meat sauce and I pushed it in the back of my mouth and tried to push it through where my molars were. That was the only hole that, that would go to, to my mouth, to my tongue, where I could um, get food in there. That was how I ate my, 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 uh, my shakes. Oh. I would just suck them through the side of my mouth. So I tried to force a little, and it was, it was not like, it was not like a wide opening. It's tiny. I couldn't. I could barely get my pinky finger in there. But I'm trying. I'm getting toothpicks, and I'm just trying to stuff just a little <laughs> bit of meat in my mouth to eat it because I just want to eat some food. I'm tired of liquid going in my stomach. So that's. The, I don't wish that on anybody, man. He's got a little rough six weeks Ooh. ahead of him. And then when you first get your uh, your your wires cut, your jaws your jaws atrophied, so you can barely open your mouth. Um, oh. And then, you, you, how long? Now you talk six weeks about that. How long did it take that scar? I mean, you've got for for the listeners that haven't seen you up up close, you've got a scar that every warrior on the planet is probably jealous of. I mean, that thing goes from the middle of your forehead straight down between the eyes and down around the nose. That was from the Joe Stevenson elbow, right? No, I, I the Joe Stevenson fight. I only have. Like it's like an inch and a half scar, and that's to the top left of my forehead. That big scar that you that you notice, most people don't even. My wife didn't even notice that until we were dating for about six months. I had that when I was five years old. I went through a windshield at five. God. So it's one of those things. I've had that kind a of like windshield at five. Yeah, this is back this in the, is the Bahamas. Bahamas. Yeah, I um. I'm, my mother and I, my mother's taking me over to my grandmother's house, and this is 1981. Yeah, this is 1981, maybe 82. It's the summer, and um, I'm five years old. Uh, yeah, it had to be 82 if it's the summer, and I'm five. And she's, borrow, she's borrowing a friend's car who's a carpenter, and I'm sitting in the, he, he has, uh, has some, some, some stuff he's building in the back seat with nails in it, some wooden nails sticking up, of course, so he's in puncturing his seats so this is the 80s remember remember seatbelt laws didn't exist until like 89 90 and that's in america i don't even think we still have we we don't have seatbelt laws in the bahamas anyway i'm sitting on the back of a convertible because the the nails are in the chair so i'm sitting on the on the on the rear Window, I guess I don't know what you would call that window. So, so like, you have you have perfect shrapnel inside the car. So if you get in an accident, you're all gonna die. I, I get this now. This is this is about as unsafe a driving environment for a child as you can you can envision. Yeah. Please continue. I don't want people listening are waiting. How did you go through a windshield? <laughs> so a guy does not stop at a stop sign, and we're we're on this thoroughfare. And this is one of those that you can you can build. It's like the roads in the Bahamas aren't wide open and whatnot. But we're going probably 35, 40 miles an hour. I'm a 40-pound, 5-year-old sitting on the backseat of the windowsill. And this guy doesn't stop at a stop sign. And my mom slams into the side of him. I go through. I, hit, I fly from the backseat, hit the dashboard, and go through the windshield. And I'm on the hood of the car. And... I don't, I don't remember much of this at all. My mom tells... I do remember my mom wearing an orange shirt that day. And um, my mom... I remember... Uh, my mom tells me she gets out of the car and she's screaming. She's, she's losing her mind. And she's screaming. She grabs me and she says... I don't remember this at all. 
And um, she grabs me and she's hugging me and she's asking me if I'm okay. And I look at her, she says, I look at her and I ask her what's wrong. I, and then I look at her shirt and, I'm, and her, there's blood all over her shirt. And I'm like, mommy, why are you bleeding? And then I pass out. And <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't remember any of this, but I do remember being in the hospital. And I, I woke up by the time I got to the hospital and they were... They were about to give me stitches. They were about to give me a local anesthetic, or or, a, or maybe it was a full body anesthetic, to um, put me put me relax me so they can give me stitches. I had thirty two stitches down my face, and I was freaking out because I was more concerned with the needle that they were going to stick me with. Because to this day, I hate needles, um, and I was I was more concerned with that. But I got thirty two stitches down the center of my face right when I was down five the years face. Old. So 80, 80 some fights, I assume that had to be from a bad elbow or a knee. Nope. Five year old little little boy Eve goes through a freaking windshield and you're laying on the hood of a car covered in glass. This is um and <laughs> you snuck this in there. You were sitting on the back not the back seat, but like the windshield, like that little ledge by the by, yep. by the back window. <laughs> Yep, like 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 uh, John F. Kennedy and 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 oh, <laughs> uh, and it was a convertible, so the top was down. Yep, it was a convertible. So even like you, 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 the poor kid, you couldn't bounce out of the car. You had to go through the glass instead of like, oh my goodness. Yeah, I never thought about that. And and every time, and it's near the airport. So every time I go home, like. It's not really close to the airport, but it's it's on a, on a major thoroughfare. So virtually every time I go home, and my grandmother lives around the corner from there now. So every time I go home, I pass that intersection, and I point it out to my wife every time. That's where I got my scar. She's like, you tell me that every time. I'm like, it's a great story. It, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was good enough to digress from UFC 187 breakdown. I mean, I had to, I had to find that out. So you broke your jaw, you split your face open at five. Uh, incredible. So back to the main, back to the main event. Now uh, we have a new light heavyweight champion. Um, you know, what do you think of all the criticism uh, that people are coming at? Like, hey, you know, you're second best. You shouldn't be celebrating this. That, this that some people are saying for Daniel Cormier. I mean, obviously, me having a relationship and having a lot of respect for Daniel. Um, you know, I, I think it's obviously hurtful and it's tough. You know, he can't control that. Agreed. And, um, I, I agreed to that to some extent. Um, I think, I think for DC anyway, I think the, the way the public would be more accepting of him as a champion is if he gave them the caveat of, I, I, I know that John beat me. I know that we fought and he, he won in, in, in a pretty convincing fashion. Um, but I'm the best guy here right now, and when John comes back, I want to try that again. You know, because I yeah. am I I am the best here now. There was one other guy that could challenge John, and because John screwed up, he I got he got to he had to challenge me, and I was able to take that guy out. So I'm the best right now. Bring everybody else, and I'm gonna knock them down. So that when John comes back, I'm gonna knock him down too. But, yeah. I think the fact that that you know that that, that caveat's not there that that uh, that John is the best but he's not available is is not being touted to what it to the value that it really has is is why I think the public is just like eh, he's a paper champion I don't think he's a paper champion he's beaten up everybody else but John but that is the fight that, that you definitely have to beat that guy to be to be uh, 
considered the true champion. And otherwise, you are the best available. It's like, it's like when the NFL goes on strike, <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. And we're forced to watch Canadian win. football. Yeah. yeah. If, they're, if the replacements, uh, if the replacement team or replacement players win the Super Bowl, yeah, they're not the best in the world, but they're the best football players that are still playing the game. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I definitely get that. I mean, and there's no doubt. Look, John's not only the best in that division, in, in, in my opinion, and uh, anybody who's argued with me over this has had a hard time winning their argument. John's the, be- John's the best to ever put gloves on, yeah. in my opinion. I don't think anybody has beaten the level of competition he's beaten by as wide of a margin um, and as diversified and as dominantly as he's done so. Uh, but I, I could tell you, the first time I talked to, to Cormier after he lost to John, it was the very next week. And no kidding. And, and this is, I have seen this with, with several high-level wrestlers. Um, he was immediately talking to me about how he can beat John. Hmm. How he's, he knows he can. He, he knew what he did wrong. I mean, this is like three days later. It wasn't like, you know, I mean, he didn't have that defeated, okay, you know, I'm going to have to be constantly number two. In his mind, and, and this doesn't mean that he's going to beat him or anything like that. I was just impressed with the mindset and the competitiveness. He was immediately saying, look, I know I took round four off, and that was a big mistake. I never regained my momentum. I got dominated in the fifth. Um, I took my foot off the gas after the third round. My cornermen were all yelling too many things at me. I have to, I have to, I have to get that under control. But he was all, he, he wanted, he's like, I, my next fight, I already told the UFC I want a five-round fight. I've got, I've got to get more experience going five rounds. He thought that was a big deal. So it was interesting. So there, there's no doubt in my mind. I don't want anybody to think that he'll ever duck. I mean, he wants John to come back. That's the fight he wants to have. Yeah. Um, and he's, he's no dummy. He knows that's going to be a tough fight. John's the best to ever put gloves on. And, uh, you know, look, hopefully for the sport's sake, you know, he, he, he gets everything taken care of. But... We don't know. I mean, he, he may end up doing jail time for this. I mean, it, this 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 will be an interesting case as it plays out. Um, aside from that, uh, I mean, that was a hell of a performance by Cormier. I mean, Definitely. he ate some big, big shots from Anthony Johnson, who I was surprised at how much energy, how much everything AJ put into every shot. I mean, he was really wearing himself down quick, kind of living up to some of the stereotypes people had about him. You know, started to cycle, you know, started to come back around. I think he got too excited too fast. Yeah, the, uh, the thing about, about fighting a guy like DC, that, that's the thing that really bothered me. Um, I like Daniel Cormier. I, I don't know Daniel as well as you do. I've only met him in passing and through friends. But uh, I spent a lot of time with Rumble. We, we filmed that movie Warrior a couple of years ago. And uh, we spent like five weeks together that summer. And he was still fighting at 170 and then 185 back then. But we spent a lot of time together. And because of that, I was rooting for him. And watching that fight, I was really disappointed. Because when you fight a wrestler, you have to know that they are going to grind on you. That is not, that's not a secret. That's not a secret anymore. And when you, by knowing that, you should know how to prepare for that. You should be prepared for that. You should not be gassed in two rounds. 
That 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 that's hard for me to comprehend. When especially when you're fighting Daniel Cormier, if you're fighting Daniel Cormier, if you're fighting Nurmaga Medov, if you're fighting Chael Sonnen, if you're fighting guys like that, you have to know that they are going to grind on you and they are going to try to to to, to ride your gas tank, and and you have to you have to be prepared for that. And the only way to prepare for that is to have guys grinding on you in the gym. You can't you can't run an extra mile. You can't do extra cardio, you have to ha- get used to guys grinding on you and, yeah. and, and working out of those positions and knowing how you can rest in those positions and how to escape and using the most efficient ways to, to, to neutralize situations. But, I, you know, that didn't happen. I, I noticed after the first round, the way Anthony Johnson was sitting on the stool, I was like, man, he shouldn't be sitting on the stool like that, crouched over his shoulders with, with his lungs not being able to expand. He's, he's yeah. getting a lot less oxygen in the time that he can recover, and that's not, that's not going to help his case. And then the second round, it was a little bit worse. He was slouched a little more, and, and you know, it never even went past the third. So it's one of those things, man. It was, it was, it was, it was disappointing to watch because um, I was rooting for the guy. But uh, but at the same time, it's like it's disappointing because I'm rooting for you, and this is not a secret. We all have to know this because if we don't know this, you're you're not paying attention. Yep, I think the worst thing that happened was he hurt him so early yeah. in that fight in round one. He landed he landed hard. He knew he had Daniel hurt, and that got him super excited. And he saw he tasted the finish. He tasted that belt around his waist. He tasted that excitement, and he just. Let me finish this right now. Let me fit. And he fell into that trap, and it never went away. Um, and that's tough because, you know, Daniel is such a unique athlete in his wrestling and the way he grinds. You know, having trained with him and sparred with him on two different occasions, um, he is a load, man. I, I've, I've been able to work my way back up to my feet against him. But where he is really good is taking you right back down. When he gets a hold of your leg and he pops those hips, it is really difficult to stop. I mean, he could almost throw you out of the octagon if he wanted to. And you you brought up something that made me have post-traumatic stress from, from training. When I was fighting Chael Sonnen and getting ready for that grind, I remember hitting mitts with Coach Winklejohn. And, and what we would do for conditioning was I would do rounds and, and Wink would have this hellacious pace in the pads. And then out of nowhere... Tim Kennedy would hit me with a takedown and take me down and I'd have to grapple with Tim and get back to my feet. And whenever I worked back to my feet, I'd have to go right back to this crazy pace in the pads. And, and anybody who's ever grappled with Tim understands just how miserable it is to grapple with him. He is, he is one of the very best, if not the best MMA grappler I've ever gone with and getting out from underneath him is, is just God awful. I mean, it's, it's very, very difficult to do. He's so strong yet so flexible and very, very uh, talented on the ground with his, with his grappling. And so that, that's how I remember training for that kind of fight. And you're right, though. That's what you need to be able to do because when you get done grinding your way back up to your feet, you still have to have power and speed in your arms so that you can actually deliver the type of damage you need because in most cases, you can't win on points in those fights. You've got to get a finish. Yeah. You've got to hurt them. You've got to land that one shot. And Anthony maximized some of his opportunities to do that, but then he just kind of went a little wild. He made himself easier to get down and put everything into every shot. 
Yeah, that's 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 what you can't do, man. Um, and and in those situations, you you get so excited, you start holding your breath. That like, all all the Great in that point. type of fight, in that type of fight, all the little details matter because conditioning is is like when a guy when a guy that can push your tank, a guy that could 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 poke a hole in your tank, he does that. He every little bit of gas matters, and you can't be holding your breath. You can't sit slouched on the stool. You know, you can't you can't let a guy grind on you on the fence. You want yeah. you want you want to make separation as much and as often as possible because as long as his hands are locked, you're carrying his weight. You know? Yeah. And and that, you can't have your you can't have your fist clenched too tight. You can't have your shoulders being tense. It all steals energy and you know, while we're making this sound so simple, right? The solution for Anthony, um, at the same time, the poise under fire uh, not to you know, not to totally steal a military term, but in terms of fire, I mean by punches and strikes of Daniel Cormier, it really showed a high level competitor. I mean, he he maintained his poise in there, very smart, executed his takedowns um, at the proper time. I mean, he really he really went about that fight strategically in a, in a very intelligent manner. I I was I was impressed. He took some hard hard shots, and yeah. let's face it. I don't know if there's anybody out there who hits as hard as Anthony Johnson, <laughs> both punches and kicks. I mean, it's brutal. Um, and, and that's what Cormier does, though. He, he, he breaks you. And you could tell he, in his eyes, looked like a man who knew he could win. A lot of times I'm seeing guys go into the octagon in big fights, and they look like guys that are hoping they can win. And this is the biggest attribute John Jones has far more than his skill, his athletic ability, his strength, his speed, his reach. John is back in that locker room before he fights. When he makes that walk, there is, I mean, the only thing he doubts in his mind is if that opponent has anything to offer him. And it's not in an arrogant manner either. He just, he just walks out there knowing he is so much better than you are. He's going to beat you where you're strong. He's going to demolish you and demoralize you where he's strong. And he's going to finish you. And, and that there's no question about it. He's going to go to his after party afterwards and have a great time. And that kind of mental strength um, and poise, you know, only escalates all your other skills. It only makes his reach, his speed, his, his elbows, his wrestling. It only, es- it only brings him up another level with that kind of confidence. And I saw that from Daniel this fight. Yeah. The, the, thing, about the, thing, the, the thing you mentioned about John is, is something that I, I, I don't, I don't – mean to just be abrupt with this but something that i notice about weidman weidman has that kind of personality also i think um he he may not may not be as flashy as john he's not as creative but that kid is that kid is nails man he's good Um, dude (laughs) i've said it i've said it time and time again i've said it before he fought anderson both fights through anderson this kid is going to dominate this division for a while and I, I truly believe that. I, I used to go to Hofstra to train a bunch. A, a good friend of mine, a good friend of Phil Davis's, um, Dan Valamont, who wrestled with wrestled at Penn State. He was he was the 165 pounder on the team, um, graduating 2010. And he, he he coaches at Hofstra now. So I go to Hofstra a lot. And the head coach there is. I hear these guys talking about because Chris still comes in and helps guys out and goes in there to train. I watch Chris in there with. Uh, with Aaron Simpson and Ben Clymer, another All-American, 
And this is but this is during Hurricane Sandy when he's getting ready for Anderson, when his house is wrecked, and he's just in there just putting it on these guys. He's staying in. These guys are round robbing robbing it out. And I'm talking about Aaron Simpson and Ben Clymer, two All Americans, and and Chris is just making them look like children. Like I don't think either one of them scored on him. And, and he's he's like he's telling everybody in the wrestling room, man, you guys should try this out, man. This stuff is so easy. Um, I. It's not easy, dude. It's not easy. Easy to you, and it's easy to John. It's not easy for everybody else. We're working yeah. hard at this. Yeah, I mean, he's – and I'll tell you what. If he does – you know, I did a prediction show with Fox for uh, Fight Pass at the, uh, the end of last year, and, and they asked who – you know, and I, I said that about Chris. I really feel like he's a guy who can dominate this division and hold this division for a while, which says a lot because the middleweight division – the lightweight division and the and the and the featherweight division are probably your your most stacked divisions. Yeah. Middleweight is really exciting. And if Chris Weidman can run the table on the current contenders there, he goes down as one of the best of all time. Yeah. No doubt about it. And I will tell you too, if he runs that table, you know what fight people are gonna call for, and he's already mentioned it. <laughs> Him versus John. Yeah. Him that's... versus John. It gets real interesting. You know, Chris Chris has great MMA takedowns. Now, Cormier couldn't do it. Can Chris. Chris is phenomenal when he gets on top of you. I've been hearing. I brought in David Branch to help me train for George Santiago down in Albuquerque. And Dave Branch trains with Weidman. And he was telling me about this kid. He's like, he's like, you know, he's really good. You guys both have the same nickname. So he called Weidman and he was making fun of him about it. And I remember I was sitting in the room. We were at Demacio Page's house down in Albuquerque. And I had spoken to Chris on the phone. And he was like, no, man, you know. And he was so polite. He's like, no, you keep it. I'll change my nickname. And I go, Chris, I go, BS. I go, you actually were an All-American. This is just something my agent made up, you know. So, no, keep it, man. I got nothing but respect. But I remember when you're in the same weight division as a dude that's coming up, you always try to find ways in your mind that justify, like, oh, I can take him. I can take him. I remember talking to Dave, like, so, Dave, how heavy is he on top? You know, can you get out from underneath him? Because, you know, Dave was there trying to hold me down, trying to keep me on the ground, not let me stand. And I was doing well getting back to my feet. And he looked at me. He's like, he's like, bro, I can't move underneath him. He's like, this, this, kid's, this kid's that good. He's next level. And Branch is one of those guys who's really secure in his own abilities, and he has no problem complimenting somebody else. I remember thinking to myself, like, Okay, well, shit, that's, uh, that's a fight if they call me for. I'll know I need to bring a lunch. Um, you know, and that was when Chris was just starting out, but he has taken to the game so fast. I mean, he's only, what is he, 12-0 and 0 now? Yep. I think, that's, I think he's 12-0. And, 0. and, 0. and, and um, that's the thing. Incredible. I mean, look at, look, at, look at the fight with Vitor. He mounts Vitor. Um, Vitor tries to give his back. He can't even give his back. <laughs> you know, he made a v- Vitor quit when he. I mean, he didn't even try. I mean, there was no no attempt at getting back to half guard. I mean, it, it got down there, and I think he just knew it. And the thing though is, in Vitor's defense, when Chris Weidman gets you down, he's so confident in his takedowns, his striking, and just his overall game that he creates a ton of space on top of you to hammer you with this yeah. ground and pound. Yeah. When he started ground and pounding Anderson Silva, I thought to myself, "You're giving him way too much room. He's going to get back to his feet." Chris doesn't care. I mean, Chris fell back for an ankle lock on Anderson Silva. Yeah. You know, I mean, he just, he's so confident everywhere. That's unbelievable. And I'll never forget this. I was working with him, and Ariel Hawani said to Chris, he said, man, does it still, and this isn't that long ago. It's like a month ago. 
he goes, man, is it still pretty cool to when, when someone calls you champion? Is it still feel almost like surreal when they call you champion? Chris looked him dead in the eye, not a second's hesitation. And he said, no, it would feel real weird if they're not calling me champion. <laughs> no BS, man. And I was like, it was, it was, it was very gangster of him to say that. And I was like, damn, this kid, this kid has it. I mean, he's got all the tools, but you know, it is. You can have all the physical tools. That's one very, very small, essential part of it. Yeah. The most important is you got to have it's the head. Head, man. You know, and, yeah. and he's got it, dude. He is—he's he, a bad dude, and and so. And could you believe Dana White saying possibly Jacare is next for him? I, I get where he's coming from a little bit, but I think Luke Rockhold has made it clear he should be next in line. You know, I I, I definitely. I definitely see the Luke Rockhold argument. I see the fight as a very entertaining fight, but I also see the ja- as the Jacare fight as as a good as a really good test, a really good fight, and another way. If Chris gets through that fight, I see that as a way to for him to seal uh, his his leg. Well, not necessarily seal his legacy, but add to his legacy. I mean, Jacare is the is the best. I think you and I would both agree that Jacare is is the best jujitsu guy in MMA. You know, and um, Jacare's stand-up is not bad. I don't necessarily think he's he's going to be able to take Chris, but that fight will see the mat. And if that fight sees the mat, I would love to see Chris Wyman and Jacare in MMA jujitsu situations. That's I, I just I just can't imagine. I can't I can't. Fa- it's 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 that immovable object versus the unstoppable yeah. force. It's that in the grappling aspect. I think I, I love it. I, I I love to see it. Um, my only thing is, and, and this isn't really Jacare's fault necessarily, I just don't feel he has the wins necessary to make a stronger case than Rockhold. What Rockhold did to Machida yeah. was ridiculous. He he annihilated Costa Filippo, demolished him, Boach. Uh, he, is, he has just looked absolutely unstoppable. At this point, yes, there was the Vitor Belfort fight, but as we all saw, it, it looked like a completely different human being in there against Chris Weidman than the, than the Vitor Belfort monster that Luke Rockhold faced. Um, in fact, Michael Bisbing said during an interview today that he believes his 14-year-old son could have beat up that version of Vitor Belfort, but that's besides the point. Um, that's Michael Bisbing being Michael Bisbing. But, uh, you know, it was just a different guy. And so I, I, I almost – I don't hold that loss – against Rockhold that was a different era in the UFC with the whole TRT BS but he has just looked so good in that fight with Machida who was at that time the last guy to go with Weidman and that was a heck of a fight nobody goes out there and just demoralizes Leota Machida that's a fight that I think significantly raised the stock and said Rockhold's next and for Jacare you know unfortunate had he gotten Yo Romero and got a chance to fight that fight yeah. and finished Yo Romero Wow, you know, then you'd have a real argument on who should win. And I don't like the answers. People say make them fight each other. No, don't do that. Don't ruin one contender to 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 build up another one. Keep them both. They fought before and Luke beat them. And that counts to me. That's why Luke gets the first shot. Have Jacare wait in the wings. He could fight the winner of it. Um But I agree, it'll be really interesting if and when Jacare, if he is next. Yes, since the UFC is going to Rio in August, maybe that's what they want to headline. But, man, Luke Rockhold, when you look at what he can get done on the ground and in the striking department as well, and he's a very good wrestler, according to Daniel Cormier, 
it makes it super interesting to, how he matches up with Chris Weidman. It does, and and you you you're not. I mean, you're preaching to the choir to a degree. Um, Maybe I'm not in the choir, but I, I might be in the band because I, I, I want to see the Rockhold fight. But at the same time, um, I just I, I do like the Jacare fight also. But yeah, when you put when you put the numbers down, when you put the history down or the resume, especially the recent resume down, uh, Luke deserves it a little bit more. But I want to I want to see them both, you know. And and if Chris is is who I think he is, I think we will. So. I'm not. I'm. I'm not going to be angry if if Luke gets to the fight first. Um, I think it'll be a great fight with Rockhold. But if you if you look at Chris Weidman's fights and you look at John Jones's fights, you, just think about this: How many times has Chris Weidman lost a round? You know, it's it's the same as John, man. There's there's really nobody else dominating like those two at the as a champion. I mean, um, Jose yeah. Aldo is right there also, but. He's had more competitive fights. I mean, Chad Mendez, Frankie Edgar, yeah. those were very competitive fights. And, yeah. and people almost discard the Frankie Edgar fight, forgetting when you rewatch that, you see where Frankie has his argument, thinking that maybe he won that fight. That was a close fight. That was a close fight. Some of the rounds could have gone either way. Jose won, but it was competitive. You know, Cain Velasquez is in that mix, but he's just injured all that. I mean, that guy, that poor guy's lost out on millions with just due to injuries. Um, you know, he'll be back soon, but he's another really dominant champion. But I agree. The big thing is, is every time someone fights John Jones, we try to find a way that, that that guy can beat him or challenge him. And John goes out there and makes the dude look bad. Yeah. He took Daniel down. Daniel had the one big slam, but John bellied down. It wouldn't have scored in a wrestling match, but it was a takedown for MMA, obviously. But, uh, I mean, damn, John is just that good. And it makes you wonder, can, can Chris get inside the reach and get him to the ground. I think if if the fight does hit the mat, I think Chris can have some success there. I think he's just that elite of a grappler. Yeah. Um, you just never want to be on bottom of John. I mean, John's elbows are a thing of of just destructive beauty. Yeah. Uh-huh. But yeah, I mean, lots of lots of fun things can happen if we get obviously John Jones back. I mean, we want to see the Cormier fight first. But if Weidman can run that table, who knows? I mean, it could be a Musical chairs with that belt with Weidman, Rockhold, and, and Jacare in that mix there. And not to mention, you know, Yo Romero, he's, he's a little old for, for hitting his stride in MMA, but we'll, we'll see what he has to offer. I've seen him be a little chinny at times, which leads me to believe he couldn't hang yeah. with those three. Um, Musasi has certainly uh, been looking better and better, and he lost to Jacare, obviously. In, in what was a valiant effort, but, you know, Jacare eventually caught him on the ground. He'd be the first to tell you that he wasn't mentally up for that fight, which makes a big difference. I don't know if the fight ends any differently, even if he is up for it, but you definitely have to throw his name in the mix because Musasi, he, he's still a young dude who has not taken a whole lot of damage despite over 30 fights as a pro fighter. Yeah, this, um, Musasi, the thing about Musasi, uh, I just I just don't see Masasi as as one of the elite guys anymore. He was for a long time, but but when I look at Rockhold, Jacare, and Weidman, I think I think Musasi and Yoel and those guys they still have a little bit to prove to get into that neighborhood. You know, they they still have to get the gate code to get past the security guard to get into that group. But um, those 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 are still good fights. I mean, the, those guys. 
they're just like everybody else in the game, you know. They're hungry, they want it, and and all it takes is just figuring it out and, and doing the right things. And and if if you get to that point, you know, you've seen guys like like Cowboy, you know, Cowboy Cowboy was always good, but Cowboy's like now he's showing that he's great. I think after the Nate Diaz fight is when he really started to show up, and then he kind of fell off again, and then the Dos Anjos fight. Um, I think those things can make you stronger. So. So, you know, Masasi fights one of those guys, and maybe that changes, changes his attitude in the gym. Maybe that brings him up a level, and, and he's, he gets into that elite group, him and, and Yoel. Those kinds of guys, I think that may be what they need. But we're talking about some of the best. We're talking about the best guys in the game, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, um, to I – lo- I love doing this to you. I'm going to take a side road right here and use one of my parallels and talk about how – those guys are so dominant. I'm looking at, and the, the reason I'm doing this to you is because you are who you are and you have so much information about this. Iraqi forces trying to take back key territory in, in Ramadi, Kama, Baghdad, and Baiji. And um, what I'm saying is the U.S. is John Jones of the military world, pretty much. But now we've got, we've got some upstarts in ISIS trying to, trying to cause some problems. And, and Iraqi forces are actually, Iraqi forces are trying to take their territory back. So do you think the, the, the guys over there, the guys that, I mean, these are the guys that I'm assuming these aren't the same guys that ran and basically left equipment behind for ISIS to take over. But it says Iraqi forces are trying to take back their territory. So oh, yeah. do you think these guys are, are what, what do you think of that situation going on right now? Now, it's, it's, I am sure it's some of the same guys, and, and that's the problem, right? Yeah. We are the, we are the John Jones of, of the military, and the problem is because of our government and our political leadership, we're always kind of one foot in, we're one foot out. Always crashing in the trees. Yeah. You know, we're, we're, we're fighting with one arm, one leg behind our back, and, and um, not that we should have all those hands in the fight. I mean— we have got to make some hard decisions, and the problem is our leaders won't. Our, our leaders lead. It's, it's leadership by crisis. We don't do anything and make a difference until there's a crisis, and right now, ISIS isn't considered a crisis, so it's not forcing a major decision. Here's my issue. What is our end state in this game? Is our end state just to assist because we don't like ISIS and we still feel connected to Iraq and we want to help them? Is our end state to annihilate ISIS? Uh, because in a way that supports uh, al-Assad uh, in Syria, what is our end state? And I want to know that. I want to know the men and women that we are sending over to Iraq right now to assist in the fight against ISIS. They're going to get – some of them are going to die too. What are they bleeding for? What are they sacrificing for? What's our long-term objective? Until that is clearly defined, I am sick and tired of people in Washington, D.C. sending men and women that are like me that raise their right hand to go risk their lives. Do I agree with ISIS? Absolutely not, I don't. I think they are, they, they are men in ISIS that deserve to die. They absolutely deserve to die. There is no place in today's global culture for a caliphate like that. Yeah. That will execute people brutally for the reasons they will. Um, however, we can't get involved in these other countries if they're not committed. If they're going to turn around, if the men in those countries are going to turn around and run every time they face opposition. I mean, ISIS was outnumbered in Ramadi. They were outnumbered. 
And, and then we had out strategized. They came back. This is not a brand new tactic where they used a bunch of suicide bombs to go in there and totally disrupt us. And then they're blaming, oh, well, there were sandstorms too. No, they, they sent in over 20 suicide bombers in massive vehicles that had massive explosions into key government terrain and territories. And you just, you can't beat a, a suicide bomb. You don't win with them. I mean, they, they're so massive, they always cause tons of damage. And, but it has a huge psychological impact on the opposition. So these Iraqi fighters, they see these huge explosions. They see all that violence, all the carnage that happens in the wake of it. They get scared, they duck tail, and they run. It was the exact psychological effect ISIS wanted to have. Why were they a step ahead of us? Are we doing the thinking for the Iraqi army or not? Who's running the show? Because that's what I want to know. Because if we're running the show, then that's our job to be a step ahead. And the problem is, is if the Iraqi army and the Iraqi citizens are not willing to die for their country right now, then I'm not willing to send our troops in there to help them anymore. Until you're willing to come to this table and say that you're going to go to the same level that ISIS is, because they are, they recruited and had over 20 people that said, I'm willing to die for what I believe in. They got in, they strapped themselves in a suicide vehicle, and they killed themselves to kill a, a ton of their enemy. ISIS is willing to die for their cause and their caliphate right now. Maybe not their leadership, because I'm sure their leaders are corrupt like, like any countries, um, but their soldiers are. And until the Iraqi people are willing to die to take their country back, there's not much we can do. We can go in there and we can wipe out ISIS in a matter of months if we wanted to. But then ultimately we got to leave that country back to Iraq and what's going to stop the next group from coming up and taking it over? Because it's not like Islamic extremism is, is isolated by geography or to just U.S. involved events. I mean, there's Islamic extremism in Northern Africa, in, in the Phil I mean, there's, there's yeah. in the Philippines and in all kinds of different places. So people that, you know, people always want to blame everything on wherever we are. Um, but, but these are things that we need to think of and that we need to be sure of. We, we, we don't study enough of history. We can place another style of government into Iraq. Is it going to be successful? You know, I think we need to have a legitimate talk. Should Iraq look at maybe dividing the lines and, and separating their country? You know, do, do the, should the Kurds have their own, their own state? Should the Shiites and the Sunnis have their own states? Because they obviously don't get along. Yeah. You know, so I think there's, there's deeper questions that we need to have answered at a high level and not just take whoever's, you know, whoever the leader of the day is in Iraq's word for it because what they say they want but then what their commitment is when, when we really get to fighting are two different things. And if every time ISIS comes to knock on the door to take another city, they're going to duck tail and run, then we got a real problem. And I think that Iraq itself needs to do some soul searching. And, and if you're not willing to fight for your own home, then it doesn't matter who comes in to help you. Long term, you're not going to win. And the money and the money we spend and the blood we shed is not going to be worth it. And I, I am, I'm getting really tired of this irresponsible leadership uh, by, by our government. And a lot of this upcoming presidential campaign, Iraq is going to be a big question for people. How would they have handled it the first time? How are they going to handle it going forward? You know, I don't have all the answers, but I'll tell you what. When you're president of the United States or you're in Washington, D.C., you have available to you some of the most intelligent and well-versed historical people in the world to help aid you in any decision you want. 
Okay. Yeah. You have access to them. It is not your job to come up with all the best ideas. It's your job to decide which ideas are the best and to put resources behind them. And so I'm sick and tired of seeing our leadership not make the right decisions. I want to know what's going into all long-term decision. I want to know why I'm spending a lot of my tax money on a government, where it's going to go, and I want to know why. What's our long-term solution in Iraq? What's our plan? Why are we involved? And don't just tell me it's just to support them to kill ISIS because we're, we're, we're not winning that fight right now. They're gaining momentum. They're taking key terrain in Anbar province. They're taking key cities. Um, we're regrouping for a counterattack. But how long will that counterattack uphold? I want someone to tell me, are these Iraqi men and women, are they willing to die for their country before we send our people who are willing to die for them? Yeah, that that that's that that was the question that I was I was having. It's uh <clears throat> yeah, if you if you're not willing to die for your family, how can you ask someone else to do it? Yeah. And and I get the art people are going to come back to they're going to throw 2003 in your face. Um look, we can't make decisions on the future just based solely on past mistakes, right? We can't just say, "Hey, this is what we did. This is why we owe here." if what we think we owe them is a stupid decision in the long run, right? Yeah. We, we always reserve the right to get smarter, don't we? So let's learn from the past and let's make better decisions now based on what we feel are the right long-term object, uh, or, uh, objectives for, for our country, for our allies, and most importantly for, for the Iraqi people. You know, and, and that's, that's what, and I, I gotta assume these discussions are happening. But because we're so polarized in our own country and in Washington, D.C., so polarized, it, that has long-term effects on your military. If the Republicans all want to see ISIS annihilated, but yet the Democrats aren't really sure what they want to see and what they want to happen, what ends up happening is that indifference, that inability to come to one sole decision as a country plays out in your military and having a half-assed campaign. And, and that's, that's part of the problem that these selfish people in D.C. can't come to. Hey, what's our political agenda? If we totally agree with Obama's strategy, well, then shoot, no Republicans are going to get elected in the next election. We're going to prove them right. Or for the Democratic side, you know, just flip-flop it. The same holds true for them. Okay, hey, jerks, I don't care about what keeps you in office. Please get together, come up with a great decision that's going to be what's best for all of us, and, and then – you know, I'll feel more confident about committing our troops in a harm's way um, and supporting uh, the nation of Iraq correctly. So, sorry, that's a massive rant I just went on. <laughs> no, I, I, I honestly, Brian, I really like listening to you, you talk about the Middle East because you have experience there. And I, I, I only know what I see on the news. You know what I mean? That's that's my resources and my information is limited. You um. Uh, and I'm sure yours aren't as as unlimited as they were when you were there, but <clears throat> you still have that that experience. You still have that knowledge of the territory. I um when you when you talk about these things, I I look at I look at uh, what you talk about about kicking it down the road, kicking the can down the road, not dealing with something when it becomes a crisis. Not until that point is I think about. This country. I'm not a natural-born American, but I think about the the founding fathers of this country, and these people. They were they worked like George Washington, Abraham Franklin. I mean, sorry, Abraham Lincoln, uh, Benjamin Franklin. These guys. They worked. They were. They were. Um, 
they they weren't pol- they weren't career politicians. They 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 didn't go to school and study political science and then get into politics. They they were they were pe- they were they were regular people. They weren't career politicians and and I think that, that that's probably part of the problem, man, as far as kicking things down the road. It's like it's Politicians are doing exactly what GE's doing. You know, uh, the the first light bulb that Thomas Edison built, that thing is still lit. It's still going. It's still running. You know, but they build light bulbs to fail so that you have to buy more light bulbs, right? And that's that sounds like what what the politicians are doing. It's like, you know, let we 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 possibly can fix the problem completely, but if we if we fix if there are no problems, then they don't need us. Yeah. What's the political agenda to keep our party in power, to keep funding coming in for our campaigns? Um, when is the White House? When is the Senate and Congress? And then when that happens, then we could start getting stuff done, right? I mean, that, that's the hard part to deal with. There's a lot of answers on ISIS in Iraq that I'm willing to accept, whether it's, hey, we're pulling out completely. We're no longer going to support it. Um, or we're going in all in. We're going to annihilate ISIS. I can, I can accept those two and a lot of things in between those two if I am told the why and I understand the why behind it and why that, that is best long-term for the area. The Middle East has a nasty history of, of violence, of, of uh, regime change, and all kinds of turbulence. And so it's very difficult when you want to go in there and have a long-term effect and then put in and handpick the administration that you want to run this country so that now, poof, Iraq is now your main ally in the region. Um, that's very difficult to do because those people aren't willing to accept certain things. And, and it's brought out, I mean, it's brought out the argument where you got a lot of people saying, hey, you should have never taken a guy like Saddam Hussein out of power. And Saddam Hussein was an evil, evil dude. And, and, and literally people... It's a valid argument. Should we have ever taken him out of power? He at least controlled the place and people were living their lives as long as they didn't do anything that upset Saddam. I mean, it's, but that's how wild an area it is uh, in, 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 in political terms and in terms of violence that you can't just go in there and try to oversimplify things. And, and then there's long-term effects too. ISIS was born out of Syria and it's a main opposition to, to, to Basra al-Assad um, a horrible dictator in Syria as well. So if you go and eliminate them, you just help him. I mean, what right. what can we do long term that's best for the people over there that they're going to want our involvement in, and and do we need to be involved? If so, how much? I mean, there's there's just lots of questions to be answered there um, that I I haven't heard intelligent solutions and intelligent reasoning, and and certainly haven't haven't heard exactly what our end state is. And if so, why that's a formidable one and, and why it's one that will actually uphold and, and last. So difficult, difficult scenario that, that will continue. I mean, look, we're, we're going to be arguing about this. I have a feeling we'll be old and gray if we're lucky to live that long. And, and you're still going to have problems in that region of the country. There's just such deep-rooted issues and differences there uh, that it makes it, it makes it very hard for some Americans and, and some people in Western culture to understand – why we get involved at all. And, and to that, my answer is obviously the spread of terrorism. You know, I mean, obviously, uh, 
some of these groups like the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and specifically ISIS now, they're not looking to just keep their movement contained in certain areas. They, they do want it to spread. That is a problem. That is a problem internationally, and that does merit our attention and the attention of our allies because it's massive ideological differences in how they think you should live your life based on religion and human rights and how we in the Western culture, you know, we want to live our life in the rights that we believe people should have. So uh, obviously a lot more to follow on that. And, you know, I will end my rant because we're about to end the show and end this episode. Uh, continue on Twitter, folks. Keep sending us your questions and ideas. And uh, yes. Eve, you're headed to L.A. to do your first pre- and post-fight show. Man, I know you got to be excited, and I'm headed to Brazil to call this card. I'm I'm super excited. I'm gonna be in the avocado room with Brian. I'm sorry, with Brian, with Dominic and Michael, and we're just well, any any time. Uh, here's here's what's gonna happen, Brian. Anytime Michael gives you any flack for anything you may say while we're in the avocado room, I got your back, dog. Yeah, you slap that punk if he's got something to say. <laughs> Tell him I'll come. I'll come up here tonight. He's he's great. We have a lot of fun ribbing each other. But yeah, it's. Uh, you're, you're, you're an easy target when you're calling fights and speaking for seven hours. So I imagine there'll be plenty, plenty of him and Dom sniping at me, but, uh, you're, you're, you're in with a great crew, man. That's three great mixed martial arts minds working together. Um, I will certainly be listening in as we throw to the desk in between segments. I'm excited to hear you guys throw down and I'm telling you, man, people are going to see you shine. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun to watch you in your first gig. I hope so, man. I'm nervous, but it's gonna be fun. I um, I just want to say again, man. Thank you for thank you for the help for if you're getting ready for that. Thank you for all the advice and have fun while you're down there. Uh, to all our listeners, I we appreciate you guys tuning in. Like I said last time, you know, please subscribe, tell a friend, and um, you know, tweet at us if there's, there's things you wanna wanna talk about. We we were gonna get into some of those things today, but we just got so excited about 187. And then um, I I have my I always have my TV on in the background and there was some stuff going on about Iraq and Brian is my source for the Middle East man and, and he I, he's our source for the Middle East myself and the rest of our listeners so. you gotta hit that 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 passion trigger on me get me all fired up <laughs> so um, I wanted to get his take on that but guys thank you so much for listening. Brian, it's always fun doing this with you, man. Next week we're gonna have a good time, and if if you if you can do something that oh next week is gonna be great. I, I'm not we're not even gonna talk about it. We're just gonna we're just gonna drop it on him next week. Good, so, I like that idea. <laughs> we'll do that, and then guys, tune in. Make sure you tune in next week, of course, and tune in this weekend for the fights. Brian's calling. Uh, make sure you let him know that he's doing a great job because that's my man, man. He's, he's, he's my dog. So just <laughs> make sure that. you keep, keep, his, keep his spirits up. And uh, we'll see you guys in a week.